Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. Great. For those of you that came in a bit late and that don't know me, my name is Christoph. I am husband to one very beautiful wife and father to three beautiful daughters, soon to be one or two extra sons. We're waiting to see how the adoption process pans out. My wife says she feels we're getting twins. I told her God needs to do some stuff in my heart still before we get there. But if we're getting twins, he will make sure that I'm ready. Um, Tonight I want to speak about uh, a longish passage of Scripture that all of you will know fairly well, I'm assuming, and it's found in Hebrews 11, and it's very often referred to as the, the Hall of Fame for Faith. It's referred to as the Heroes of Faith. And I think very often we get paralyzed by reading Scripture and taking Scripture and we compare it to our everyday mundane lives. Our lives that seem so seemingly insignificant. And in a very real sense, it is insignificant. Everybody's replaceable. But on the other hand, it's not insignificant. God looks at us with great excitement, with great hope. And there's great works that He has called us to walk in. So I want to touch on this hero thing. There's a reason why I chose that as the cover slide. And there's a reason why Marvel does so well financially, is they speak to this thing in us that, me too, I also want to be a hero. I also want to I also want to make a difference. I think all of us have that, that thing in our heart of, I, I, I want to make an impact. I want to do something of significance. But then the enemy is so clever. He comes and he steals the one thing that we need to be able to do that. He steals our faith. Because the script, scriptures say that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So the devil is quite clever in that, he comes and he diminishes our faith. And that's what I want to speak about tonight. I want, to, I want to stir your faith. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, Fan into flame the fire that's inside of you. And I believe there are some of you here tonight with no flame. And at the end we're going to call you up and we'll lay hands on you and we'll trust God for a flame to start burning in your heart. There's some of you with a small little, small little flame. And tonight, I'm trusting that we will fan that flame so it burns inside of you. There's a prophet in the Old Testament that said, I cannot help but speak because your word burns inside of me like a fire. I think that's the, the, the standard place that a Christian sort of needs to, to find themselves in, that the, the word of God must burn inside of you that you cannot help but speak. But I don't think we can be burning to that extent indefinitely. Because otherwise we'll 
be like a shooting star. Whew. And who of you know this is a marathon? It isn't a 100-meter sprint. Imagine how that race would go. Paul wrote about it. He wrote to Timothy. He said, make sure that you run a good race so that you can run it to completion. That's the most important part. We need to complete it. In a, in a very real sense, in sports terminology, let's use a marathon, your most time or your biggest opportunity for victory is in the last 10% of your race. If your last 10% is your fastest 10%, you run your race well. And that's how I'm trusting God to live my life. I, I needed to, to build momentum and it needs to increase, not decrease. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, uh, God is speaking and he has this message to be taken to the people. And he says, and, and I sort of talking to one another, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they're having this little meeting. Yes, you guys are so ironic. Like, you're asking a question, but you know the answer. You're sort of just baiting us. That's what they're doing. But anyway, now they're having this little meeting. And they say, who would, send, who, would, who would we send? Who would go for us? And then who of you have watched Shrek? So I'm, I'm in the phase now where I've got kids. In Shrek, there's this little donkey. And he's like ADHD. Like, and he, when Shrek wants to do something, donkey jumps. He's like, pick me, pick me. Elijah does that. I would love for all of us to respond like that to God. When he asks, and who would we send? Who would go for us? That we can respond in such a manner. But like I said, it's a marathon. So I just want to recap um, on the previous message that I spoke on. And it was a message about work. And I know some of you might have heard it. Some of you weren't here when I preached it. And the reason why I want to recap it is this being a Euro element, it has to be built on a very consistent, almost mundane foundation. Otherwise, you will set yourself up for tremendous failure. When I was um, still a new believer, I felt very despondent. I would read, read the New Testament, and I would see what the disciples did, and it was healings and miracles and water to wine, and the one guy walked on water, and or I'll read the Old Testament and they would call down fire and it will burn up the sacrifice, the stones and the water and everything. And then he'll pick up his skirt and he'll outrun a chariot. And then I think to myself, it's like I've never done anything like that. Am I even a Christian? Is sort of the questions I would end up with. But then the Holy Spirit reminded me of something so powerful. All four books of the gospel is a summation of three years of people walking with the Son of God. There, I promise you, there were mundane moments for the disciples. There's even one account where Jesus has been discipling them for some time, and they're walking, and they end up in an argument on who's going to be the greatest. Huh? Imagine this, God is Himself has been discipling you for two years, and you and your friends are arguing and who's going to be the greatest disciple. So when I read stuff like that, it's, it stirs my faith because all of a sudden I'm no longer excluded. I can be included as well. So coming back to the recap on the work sermon. So often we fall into the trap of asking God for our calling, and we're expecting 
a very dramatic answer. Sell your house. Go to the 1040 window and minister to the Somalis. Sort of, it's either that or I'm not a Christian. I know you never feel like that. It's just me. But there's a reason God introduces himself to us the way that he does. So tonight I introduced myself in a very specific way. I said, my name is Christoph. I'm husband to one wife and I'm raising three kids. Now, the reason why I introduced myself like that is to, if you don't know me, to create a little bit of credibility for the message that I'm going to share. If one can be married to one woman for seven years and raise three kids that are fairly decently behaved, so if it comes, my character comes through in my... How does God introduce... Now, that, who wants to venture a guess? We're small enough. And I know a lot of names, so if you, if I, I, I might ask you by name, <laughs> how does God introduce Himself to us? I'll give you a clue. It's found in Genesis. Oh my goodness! So God introduces Himself as a working God. So He comes, and He says, "In the beginning, there was nothing." The, the word that's used in the original text is tohu vavohu. It sort of speaks about barren, wild, dry, unfertile, like nothing can live there. That's where we start. And then God starts this creation process. He, he creates the heavens and the earth, and then He separates land from water, and then He creates creatures, and He creates all of these living things, and he creates plants. So he takes something that's chaotic, that's formless, empty, without void, and he creates something that's orderly, that's beautiful, but he doesn't create it for the sake of having something that's orderly and beautiful. He creates it for the benefit of us. Somebody told me the other day, I can't remember the exact number, but for the sake of this conversation, let's say it's 10,000, that there are 10,000 different types of beetles. Do you think we need 10,000 different types of beetles? I don't think so. So why did God do that? He did it to showcase His magnificence. He did it to be able to keep us entertained or to keep us in awe of Him. There's so many different type of flowers that serve like zero purpose in my mind. But they're amazing to look at. Every now and again, we'll be walking and then my wife just stops. And then she's looking at this little flower on the ground and it's like as big as a one rand coin. I would have never noticed it. Now we, we, need, to, we need to go. And she's like, just look at it. Look how fine it is. Look how delicate it is. And that's what God did. He created Something that's so orderly, so beautiful, so magnificent, out of chaos. And then he says the following, he says, Go into the world, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. What is he saying? You've seen me take chaos and create order from it. Go and do the same. So, James was here a couple of months ago and he spoke about being in the toddler trenches. I don't think there's anyone else here in the toddler trenches. For those of you that don't know what that is, it means you've got kids 
below six and they are crazy. Like, it, my definition of success when I had my kids successful days, I or they didn't die. If we manage that, then it was a successful day. Like, it is, it's, it's a difficult season. There's a lot of chaos. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of chaos. But it's my responsibility to shepherd them through the chaos to a place of order. So, uh, they're entering primary school phase now, and let me tell you, I'm a firm believer that primary school teachers will go straight to heaven. Like, they're going to bypass the queue, they'll bypass the day of judgment, and they just they have a seat, like right in front. Have you ever seen 36-year-olds together? It is madness. It's like herding a bunch of cats to the water. Like you, you, you just, you don't know what to do and where to go. It's like controlled chaos. They have a full day of school and the only thing they learn is one letter. And then I think, yes, that's unproductive. And then I sit there for 10 minutes and then I'm like, well done for teaching them one letter in a day. Like, that's impressive. So the purpose why I'm sharing that is even for a great art teacher, she is reflecting, or he is reflecting the image of God in their work. So whether you're a great art teacher, a financial manager, a student, a cleaner, you have the fortunate ability every day to portray the image of God to society by your work. And how you do that? You do that by leading with excellence. Doing what you are called to do well. There's a saying that I love that says, imagine if all of us did what God called us to do as if God has called us to do it. I'll say that again. Imagine if we did the stuff God has called us to do as if God himself has called us to do it. Imagine how the world will look differently if you studied as if God called you to study. Imagine if you wrote that exam that you so dread as if God has called you to write that exam. Imagine you will chair that meeting or clean the floor or herd this bunch of cats to the water as if God himself has called you to do it. I think the world will look drastically different. So, as the foundation for tonight's conversation about faith, it is important to understand that everyday life has got meaning. Sometimes we feel like, I had to break it to you, if it's on a sinking ship, Revelation says it's going to get a lot worse. I had to break it to you, if you're waiting for it to get better, if you're praying for uh, ESCOM to sort out its problems and for the ANC to stop all of their nonsense and for the DA to stop being nasty and if you're praying for all of these things it's amazing to pray for it but it's going to get worse a lot worse even to the point where mothers will be so hungry that they eat their own babies it's in the Bible so we must in a place where stuff is not working properly we must be able to live that people can see Christ and the, day to do, the way to do that on a daily basis is to do it with integrity. Who of you have found that it's difficult to do business with Christians? Raise, raise your hands. Most of you haven't done business. That's probably why you're not raising your hands. So, so I'm in the fortunate position that I do a lot of business, and it's very challenging to do business with Christians. And the main reason, I believe, is Christians like to lead with their Christianity. It's sort of the introduction. Like, hello, my name is Christoph, and I'm a Christian. Can I do all of your work? 
then I'm like, ah, it's going to be a long day at the office. So there's a pastor, I keep forgetting his name. Um, Phil knows him quite well, he's from America, he's got blonde hair, he recently had uh, like a conference at Loftus, he's friends with Andy Stanley. Come on, help me out here, guys. Huh? Louis Giglio. Thank you so much. So Louis Giglio, he has a sermon that I quite like on work, and then he said he believes the way you need to work as a Christian is you need to lead with excellence. In other words, hello, my name is Chris, Christoph, and I am the best health and safety consultant that you have ever dealt with. And it needs to be true, otherwise I'm just a liar. So you lead with excellence, you back that excellence up with character, integrity, and then after a while when the people say, yeah, but you're good at your work, and you're consistent, and you don't steal our money, why is that? Now you bring in the Christianity. Because now the door has been opened. So that's how we need to work. But now let's get to this faith thing. To be able to be listed in Hebrews 11, you need to have done something quite cool. Would you agree with me? The Hall of Fame isn't for the bench warmers. Huh? Are you with me? In sports, you don't give a, well, at least nowadays it's changed. Nowadays, kids get participation trophies. In Christianity, there's no participation trophies. I had to break it to you. If you want to be in the Hall of Fame, you need to have done something of substance. How do we do that? I'm going to unpack that for us. So if you go to the next slide, when God um, sent Jesus, he had to, in my opinion, decide on three primarily, primary things. The first thing is he had to decide to watch to what geographic location will I send my son? I believe it's a fairly simple question for him because he had a covenant with a certain set, a group of people, and those people stayed in a certain geographic location. So the first one was quite easy. We need to send them, we need to send Jesus to the Israelites because they are my chosen people. The second question is where in the timeline of the world? So in creation, what happened in Genesis? The end of the world is in Revelation. So if you just picture a linear timeline for me, where on this timeline do I send my son? I don't know how he answered that question. We can ask him one day. The third question that he had to answer, and that's the question that I want to focus on tonight, is as what do I send my son? So if I was God, the most logical answer, and often as humans we feel like that, is I would have sent him as a priest or as the high priest even, like the most important guy. But he doesn't send him as that. He sends him as a carpenter. Modern translation, he's a mechanic. He's a fitter and turner. He's a, a janitor maybe. Something like that. He sends him as a worker and in uh, Western terms as a blue-collared worker. doesn't send him with a title. He doesn't send him as a full-time person in the church. He sends him as a carpenter. And if Jesus is the ultimate person to follow, which I believe he is, I hope, who here believes Jesus is the ultimate person to follow? Okay, at least we're in agreement. If he's the ultimate role model, surely we need to pay attention as to what he was sent as. Our work has meaning. Your work has meaning. What you're going to show up tomorrow morning as and how you're going to conduct yourself has an eternal 
significance. I don't believe it was a coincidence that God chose to send His Son as a carpenter. On the next slide, there's a, a passage that all of us have, have read before, but I think sometimes we miss the, the second part of it. So, the first part says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastors, and the teachers. These, this is referred to as the fivefold ministry, and typically speaking, these are the guys that are employed by the church. This is a Darlington and a Philip and a Yaku, and very often we come with the idea that they must do the ministry. But what does Ephesians say? Why were they sent? Let's read. It's actually interesting that the Bible... So this fivefold ministry, Philip, we so often wonder about. Their responsibility... So this fivefold ministry, Philip, Yaku, Darlington. Their responsibility is to equip God's people. Let me see who's God's people. Us. Edna is at least awake. Thanks, Edna. The rest of the congregation, <laughs> I'm going to have you run laps now. And then maybe you will wake up. This morning it was quite funny. Everybody sit, sat here and like this part looked like it was raptured. It was uh, interesting. So we are God's people, yes? So they must equip us. What must they equip us for? They must equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Other translations would say it must equip us to do the work of the ministry. We need to do the work of the ministry. The responsibility sits with us, not with Philip. These empty seats that you're seeing, it's not Philip. It's us. We need to be building. If we ill-equipped, that's Philip's problem. I don't think we're ill-equipped. So my question to you is, are you building? We had an elder... Um, in our congregation a while ago, his name was Michal, and he had a saying that will stick to me, stick with me until I die the day. His saying was, Sunday is the team talk, it's not the game. So it's, it's a sports analogy, and very often I find myself living that I must just make it till Sunday, and then we can do Christian things. It's sort of the, the idea that we'll come here on Sunday, and that's where the game is played. But that's the team talk. That's when the coach addresses the team. So, I want to use a, a soccer analogy. Very often Jesus spoke in parables, and it's for various reasons, but I think the most prominent reason is so that we can remember what he says. So, who of you knows God compares us to sheep? He says we are the sheep of his pasture. Who of you have ever sat and looked at sheep and think, man, what a beautiful, intelligent animal that is. Majestic in all of its ways. Huh? It's not a compliment, huh? Every time I've sat and I looked at sheep, I think to myself, really, God? Like, that's the animal that you compare me to? Like, couldn't I be like a, a shark or a, like a dolphin or an eagle or a, a sheep? But he does it for a reason. Because sheep are inherently stupid animals. So what, what is God saying? He's saying we aren't great at remembering stuff. That's why you'll see in the Old Testament, it's something that I've built into my life, they build something called memorial stones. Why? So that they can remember. So the Israelites come and they cross the Red Sea, or 
and it parts and they walk across and it closes and it kills all of the Egyptians and then right there they build a big memorial. Why? So that the generations after them can remember. There's this passage in scripture that really scares me where the people of Israel rebel against Moses and then Moses comes and he confronts them and he says, whoever's with the rebels, stand with them and whoever's not with the rebels, stand on the other side and then Moses says, I tell you the truth, if these people die a natural death, then God is not with me. But if the ground opens its mouth and swallows them alive, God is with me. And the Bible says his words isn't even cold yet and the ground opened its mouth and swallowed hundreds of thousands of people. And here's the part that breaks my brain that proves that we sheep. The next verse says, go read it. The very next day, there were people rebelling against Moses again. I'm like, come on, boys, just like wait a month or a year or something. The next day, like hundreds of thousands of people were killed yesterday because they rebelled against Moses. And it was probably in the afternoon because they had long conversations around it. The very next morning, there's people again. So we are sheep. Anyway, back to the parable. That's how we got here. I know it's a tangent, but I'm trying to, to stick to my story. So the parable that I want to tell you is a sporting analogy. So in the sport of football... There's 11 players, I've been told. I'm not a big football fan, but there's 11 players on the field. Now, the most gifted player ever. He's like 10 times the player that Cristiano Ronaldo ever was. And all 11 players go sit in the stands and they cheer the coach. The coach takes the pitch. And remember, he's amazing. He can't just walk on water. This guy can run on water. And he's playing against an average team, but of 11 players. How do you think that score is going to look like? You think that, uh, that gifted pastor is going to pull it through for the team? Even if the team in the stands are very supportive. They pitch up, they're there, they're in the pews, they're cheering. You think that, that, uh, that coach is going to pull the game through? I don't think so. I think he's going to lose by a landslide. Firstly, there's no goalie. So somebody just chips it over his head, poop it's in. It doesn't even have to be a good kick. Just remotely on target. Let's take that scenario and we flip it around. You take that gifted player, you put him next to the field, and you put 11 average players on the field with the best coach ever. Best strategy, best plays to run, best training, best drills. How do you think that team is going to fare? I think now we have a we have a fighting chance. Very often, that is how we view Christianity. We feel that the game is played in the pews. And just because you're here tonight, you are a thousand times better off than the person who's not here. But this isn't the game. This is the team talk. We need to go out there and play the game. So now the question is, how do you play the game? So if you go to the next, next slide for me. So this morning I read the whole of Hebrews 11 and then my wife said it's too long. You can't, can't just read the scripture. So tonight I'm not going to read the whole Hebrews of 11, but we are going to go through each and every person listed there. So the first person that's listed is Abel. And Abel is listed because he gave a better sacrifice than his brother. And I believe it's because Abel sought God's face. God told him, listen, 
I want a blood offering. He brought it. Cain saw, okay, Abel took the best of his flock, so I'll just take the best of my produce. It's not like Cain was a heathen and he didn't bring anything or he brought a second-hand thing, but he didn't seek God's face. So Abel was counted as righteous because of his offering, because he seeked God's face. Would you agree with me bringing a lamb as a sacrifice isn't rocket science? It's not the most difficult thing in the world. But yet that small thing got him into the Hall of Fame. His name is on the trophy. It's engraved forever. Enoch. This is a strange one. Nobody really knows what Enoch's story was, but it says God liked him so much he took him. God was like, the world doesn't deserve you, and Enoch never died. Sort of a strange story. So let's move on. Noah. This is a profound thing. Philip spoke about it in in a lot of detail. What Noah did is he built a boat. It took him many years, and he needed to be faithful and persistent, but he built a boat. Is it such a tall order to build a boat? I don't think so. I think it's hard work, but it's not like we'll get later to the guy who had to sacrifice his son. That's Noah needed to build a boat. Can you build a boat if you had proper instructions? I had a, a good time recently. I built like a, a Lego Technique D11 bulldozer with three and a half thousand pieces of Lego. It took me like eight hours of intermittent building. And I would have never been able to build it if I didn't follow the instructions step by step by step by step. I believe God not only called Noah to build a boat, He gave him the instructions to build it. So yes, we read about the dimensions, but I believe there was like a do this first type of thing. Anyway, Abraham, this is the, um, the guy who left his homeland and went to a place that God didn't tell him to go. He says, take your whole family, pack up, and go to a place that I will show you. Huh? How's that for having faith? Taking your family on a road trip and you don't even know, are you going north or east? Sarah, such a beautiful example. God comes and he says to Abraham, that your descendants will be blessed and you will have kids through Sarah. And Sarah is like, mm, I'm too old. I can't have kids. But then God stirs faith in her and she has a son. And through that son, there is a son. Blessed. The only thing Sarah did is she had faith for a son. Is that such a difficult thing to do, to hold on to have faith for a son? I don't think so. Can go to the next slide. Isaac, he blessed his sons, um, Jacob and Esau. Let me look on my laptop, then I don't turn my back on you guys. Jacob blessed his grandson. Joseph used his position in Egypt, um, his government to save his family when they went to Egypt during the time of the famine in Canaan. Also trusted God would lead the Hebrew people of Israel out of Egypt. Moses, he refused um, to be counted the king's grandson, and he led the Hebrew people out of Egypt. Are we willing to live lives of hardship for the gospel's sake? Um, sometimes I believe it's more difficult to be rich. It's very difficult for uh, people who are living a state of hardship to 
agree with that statement, and I can understand why, but there's a scripture, a passage in scripture that scares me. It says it's more easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And I don't know everybody here, but let's say at least most of us are counted as rich. And I don't know when last you've seen the eye of a needle and when last you've seen a camel, but that would be a neat trick. Then the disciples are concerned, and then Jesus says, look, with men it's impossible, but with me it is possible. But the question is, are we willing to do what Moses did? He was living in Pharaoh's palace. He was a prince. There's the thing that my kids watch, it's called Moses, and it's like a cartoon of how Moses turns his back on the Egyptians, and he kills the guy, and then he runs away, and then he comes back to rescue the people. But it's interesting how they portray him prior to killing the Egyptian. He's dressed fine, he's got like painted eyes, and he's got gold on his head. I think it's an accurate portrayal of what Moses was like before he killed the Egyptian. So Moses had to make a choice with who do I identify? And I think that's a choice that we often have to face. Rahab, interesting lady. She's a prostitute in a town called Jericho. The spies come, and the only thing she does, look, she puts her life in danger, but the only thing she does is she hides the spies. She puts them on their roof under a bunch of flax, and then they, she tells the, the gods, no, they were here, but they left, and I saw them leaving through there, so if you're quick, you can maybe catch them, and then she goes to the spies, and she says, stay here for tonight, and then go to the hill country for three days, and then you leave. So she helps them to escape, which isn't rocket science, guys, but she had to put out a faith, and then she strikes a deal. She says, when you come and take the city, because I know you will take the city, don't forget me and my family, and then the spies say, whoever's in this house will be saved, but if your family isn't here, we're not responsible for them. And then at the end of Hebrews, there's a whole bunch of guys listed. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jeremiah. If you go to the next line, David is an interesting guy for me for various reasons. The biggest lesson that I've learned from David is this concept of sin of omission versus the sin of commission. Who of you have ever heard that two terminologies? So there's, there's primarily two categories of sin. The one is the sin of omission. And the sin of commission is the other one. So most of us focus and talk about a sin of commission. What is the sin of commission? Don't steal, don't kill, don't look with lust, don't. It's the sin of don'ts. And that's a lot of the time what conversation is about, it's accountability groups, it's when last did you look at stuff on a screen that you're not supposed to look at, when last did you do this. That's what accountability groups mostly are about, which isn't wrong, but when I look at David's life, the biggest thing that set him apart is this sin of commission, or sin of omission part. So what does sin of omission mean? Is God wants me to do something and I neglect to do it. In other words, the biggest sin of omission that sort of sticks in my brain for myself is we did, I had a friend, he's, uh, he's, oh, he's still my friend, his name is Andrew. He was in our congregation, he moved to Cape Town. 
and we did uh, Liberty, which is a, basically just a long day of worship, connecting with God. And he had to drive back to Cape Town because he was moving there. He didn't have somebody to drive with him. So I said, don't worry, I got your back. I'll drive with you. But I volunteered to facilitate this thing. So we have to drive after. This was before I was married and younger and still. I don't know whether I had more energy or I was less intelligent. I'm still trying to figure that out. I stayed up with Shingi last night till 11 to watch the qualifying for the Grand Prix. And that's super late for me. Like 11 is... I told Shingi, we can just as well stay up now because it's almost time to get up. And he's like, no, we're, like, we're very far from that point. Um, so anyway, so we get in the car and we drive straight after um, doing Legacy. And we drive through the night. And let me tell you, I was exhausted. So how it worked is Saturday we did the uh, Liberty Seminar. We drove to his house. night, he dropped me straight at the airport Sunday morning. I didn't even take him to his house. I flew back on the 8 o'clock flight, landed here at 10, drove from the airport back and to lead a missions uh, meeting that happened straight after church. So that's how, how that weekend went. But the, the point of my story is I got on that plane beyond exhausted. And I sat on the seat and I felt the Holy Spirit say, speak to the person next to you. And I was like, mm, skip. And I put my head against the window and I slept for two hours. And let me tell you, that is now probably eight years ago, nine years ago. It is the best reminder. I don't know what would have happened. Maybe the guy would have committed his life to Christ. Maybe nothing would have happened. I don't know. But let me tell you, the Holy Spirit uses that to remind me to make sure that I do the things that God asks me to do. So back to David's life. David's life was full of sins of commission. This, this guy was interesting. Like He saw a beautiful lady from his rooftop, and then he called her up, and he sort of slept with her, and then she got pregnant, and then he's like, oh, guts. This is the point where I think the best thing is, okay, now you need to repent. Like, just be honest and... Like, it's gone far enough now, David. And David's like, no, 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 I have a plan. I'm going to bring back her husband from the battlefield. And then he will sleep with her and he'll believe it's her, his son. Then this guy comes, righteous guy. He says, no, I can't lay with my wife while my friends are on the battlefield. And he sleeps in the courtyard, doesn't sleep with his wife. And then David's like, oh, this is so frustrating. And then he tells his commander, get him drunk and then he'll go to his wife. Next night, same story. He refuses. He can't lay with his wife while his friends are on the battlefield. So then David's like, okay, enough is enough. I'll send him to the front line, and when he's there, I'll withdraw the people, and he'll be killed in battle. So, so David did a bunch of stuff that, in my, in my mind, and I think in your mind, is like borderline unforgivable. And oftentimes, I think we feel like that. God, that thing that I've done, that, that stuff that I watched, that stuff that I used, the way that I spoke to that, it's unforgivable. But yet in David's life, God calls him the apple of his eye. Modern Christoph translation, David's God's best friend. Like, just short of Enoch that's taken, David is like there. He's with Enoch. Like, to call somebody the apple of your eye is a bold statement. And why did God do that? I believe wholeheartedly is because when God asked David to do something, yes, David did a whole bunch of stuff wrong, and please don't 
misinterpret me. I'm not saying it is okay that David did that stuff. But in spite of it, David built God's kingdom. He listened when God spoke and he acted upon it. And his sin of omission was less than other people's. And my challenge to you this morning is, what sin do you focus on the most? The sin of commission or the sin of omission? The biggest deal, the biggest deal for me in my life is the sin of omission. Yes, it's important. My life needs to look godly, 100%. I have to live according to God's standard. I can't beat my wife. I can't swear at her. I can't shout at my kids. I can't be a drunkard. I can't sleep around. I can't be corrupt and take money. All of those things are important. But if I do not actively do what God has asked me to do, all of that is irrelevant. So that is what separated the heroes from the faith from the rest of the people, is their ability to hear God's voice and to act upon it, irrespective of them feeling like they aren't good enough. So all of the guys and girls listed in Hebrews 11 were average people. They weren't rock stars or special in any shape or form, except for the fact that when God asked them to do something, they did something. So, just to illustrate the point further, if you can go to the next slide. And uh, Maronique, if you and your team can start coming up for me, I'll appreciate it. On the left, in the blue shirt, it's me. On the right, the lady with a white shirt, her name is Eloise, and the lady being baptized, her name is Vilandi. So, Eloise is our office administrator, and Vilandi was my PA at the time. And I shared the gospel with her. She responded, repented, and that photo is actually taken at our office, well, at our previous office. We worked in a house, and there was a pool at the back. And you guys know the story of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip sharing with him the gospel, and then the eunuch's like, okay, but here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And then Philip's like, well, if you believe, nothing prevents you. And then the eunuch was in the water, and then next thing, Philip disappears. Poop. And he's back somewhere else. There's weird stuff in Scripture. Well, even before that, he runs next to the chariot, the same speed, and then he pops his head. Who of you have ever seen how fast a horse can pull a chariot? A lot faster than you can run, I promise you. And now he's, his head is in the chariot. He's seeing what the guy is reading, and he's having a conversation with him. But anyway, that moment was very similar to that. We shared with her. And she said, okay, but what prevents me from being baptized? And I said, well, if you believe, nothing. So she said, fantastic, let's go. So in work hours, and today her life looks drastically different than what it looked prior. She had her ups and downs, like all of us do. But she's got two kids and a husband, and eternity will look different for her and for her family and for the people that she will impact because of that day. And there's days like that that God has for all of us. And don't get me wrong, I don't have days like this all the time. This was about five years ago, maybe more. I was still unmarried then, so it was probably like eight years ago. 
But the reason why I chose that is because I recently spoke to her again. And she, she so encouraged my faith. And that's the purpose of tonight is I want to encourage your faith. I want your faith to be stirred to do something. Oh, firstly, I want your faith to be stirred to be able to live on a daily basis as if your work matters. And then I want you to focus on the sin of omission, to make sure you don't omit to do what God has asked you to do. Because I believe all of us wants our name to be engraved on the trophy. All of us wants to be listed as a hero. Raya was a prostitute. David was a rapist and a murderer. Noah was a drunk. But yet their names are there. Before I came to Christ, I'll share that story briefly. Um, and then I'm going to ask you, if you feel in one of those categories that I shared earlier, either you don't have a flame, you don't have hope, you don't have faith, or you've got a small flame, I'm going to ask you to be bold and to respond and come to the front so that we can lay hands on you and we can pray for you so that you can have faith. Because without faith, you can't, you can't do this. You have to believe that your everyday life matters. You have to believe that when you speak to the person on the plane, something can change. You have to believe that, otherwise you won't. If you don't believe that it will change something, it won't. So I asked you guys earlier to think back on the moment when you met Christ for the first time. And I'll share my moment with you just as a token of encouragement. If I can stand here tonight and if I can encourage you to have a life of meaning, if I can show that to you to stir your faith that it can make a difference, I wasn't disqualified. And neither will you be. So the first time I had a definite encounter with Christ, um, I was on a Kerk church camp in Matric. And the only reason I went was I was grounded at the time. I used to deal drugs, use drugs. The main reason why I dealed it was to generate income so that I'll have enough income to use. And my parents got wind of it and myself and one of my friends, we ended up being grounded. But like, you can imagine how stern the grounding is if you get caught dealing drugs in a Afrikaans. Uh, it's a very staunch um, family. So, me and my friend, we had this bright idea. To this day, I still think it was a good idea. That at the church camp, nobody would have suspected a thing. I told my parents, listen, there's this church camp, I want to go on it, and I'm grounded, but I'm super keen. They said, yeah, no, look, if it's a church camp, go for it. So we took a whole cupious amount of different things with us, and I was everything but sober on that camp. And to give you the context, it's with my peers in matric, 17, 18-year-olds. Status is an important thing who you are, how you carry yourself. The image that I've created for myself was important for me. And I'll never forget it. We walked down a little path and we 
reach a riverbed. But remember, I'm now, I'm sort of on another planet. As we're walking down, I'm looking at the stars. I'm having a ball of a time because I've been grounded and I've pulled it off, sort of made it. That's what I think in my, in my mind. And I'm here with all of my peers in matric. And we reach this river, small little river, about two or three chairs worth of river. It's more like a stream than a river. But there's a sand river bank on both sides, and on both sides there's hundreds of candles. And there's somebody with an acoustic guitar, and we just, and they start worshipping, connecting with God. And the main reason why I always escalated to the next thing with drugs, so I started smoking weed in primary school, started experimenting very early in high school with everything else. So by the time I, I got to matric, the full spectrum of everything that you can use, I've used. The only thing I've never done is I've injected heroin. Other than that, I've done everything. Now, the main reason why I kept on escalating is I had this God-shaped hole in my heart. And nothing could fill it. No women, no alcohol, no drugs. I had this gaping hole. And now I'm on this other planet, and I start playing, and I thought I'm just going to chill on the riverbank, listen to the music, have a good time. And the next moment, I'm sober, the whole of my heart is gone, and I start weeping. But you know that weeping that comes, like it comes from the inside. Even the facilitators didn't know what to do with me. Like they were giving me tissues, and they, first they asked me if something is wrong, or did I just get new ears. This whole persona that I built for years, got destroyed in that moment but God met me and he filled me and that hole has been filled ever since my journey has had many ups and downs a lot of times my life hasn't lived up to the sacrifice that Christ has made on the cross but I am not disqualified and neither are you I want you to have the faith to stand up for what God has called you to do Imagine all of us did what God has called us to do as if God himself called us to do it. So Marnique and her team is going to lead us in a time of worship and I want to encourage you. Connect with God. Go back to those promises that you made him. In my case, the promises I made next to that riverbed. The commitments I made. Go back to those promises and ask God for the faith to complete them. If you need faith, stand up, stand in the front. There's this story in the New Testament of the pool of Bethesda. It's a pool and as soon as the water started churning, whoever was sickly who got in the water first, this orderly thing, like there's a line and you wait your turn. But who of you have watched Chosen? It's an epic series. If you haven't watched it, I strongly encourage you to watch it. And in Chosen, they portray that scene completely different than what I had in my mind and I believe theirs is more accurate as soon as the water starts moving it is chaos it's elbows and it's pulling of hair and it's jumping and it's crawling because they know the first person will be healed this evening I feel the waters are turning if you respond will receive faith time to be played from the pews and you're not willing to get on the field we 
will miss the opportunity. So I am asking you, I'm pleading with you for your sake and for the people's sake that you need to impact. Don't sit and look at the waters. Respond and fulfill the promises that God has for you. So I'm going to pray for us so if you can stand, then Marinique and the team will lead us in worship. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for your example that you gave us. And we ask you for the grace and the faith to be able to follow in your footsteps. I pray that we will not focus solely on the sin of commission, but that we will focus on the sin of omission. We will not omit to do the things that you have called us to do, but we will be known as a people who act. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash shofarpretoria.org.